Every city has cases that, despite best efforts, go cold. Moscow and the Palouse as a whole are no different. There are cases which haunt our town. Welcome to Palouse Runs Cold, a joint production of KUOI and the Argonaut in Moscow, Idaho. My name is Alex Duggan, and I'll be your host this season as we cover cases close to home. Our first episode is on the case of Janice Lynn Foyles, an 18-year-old University of Idaho freshman who was murdered in December 1969 in a tip-top cafe. Janice was described by her family as a nice, quiet girl just breaking out of her shell when she entered University of Idaho in the fall of 1969. She went to high school for two years in Boise, and then she moved up to Moscow and graduated from Moscow High School in the spring of 1969. But when she did start college, she was majoring in general business. She lived in the Houston wing of Wallace Residence Center, and she was working at the Tip Top Cafe downtown. But on the cold night of December 28th, Janice showed up for her shift at the Tip Top Cafe. It was suspected to be pretty slow that night because all the students were on Christmas break, so the town was pretty quiet. When Janice didn't come home at the end of her shift, her father Marvin and her brother Randall actually went looking for her. It was around 3.30 the next morning that they went looking for her and found her body. Janice's body was behind the counter, and it was found bludgeoned to death by what police suspected to be a blunt object. And according to the Lewiston Tribune, Janice was even clutching $17 in her hand when they found her. So the police could pretty much assume that she was closing up the restaurant and counting the till when she was murdered. I spoke to Detective Will Crossell of the Moscow Police Department to see what he had to say about the case. I mean, there was no, there was no evidence of someone breaking in, correct? It was unlocked. It was unlocked. Yep. So and they figured that she was closing the night before and the... There was a window that they closed. It wasn't necessarily a certain time. It was supposed to close between 7 and 9, depending on if it was busy or if there was anybody in there or not. But yeah. they uh, typically, she would have locked the door during closing. Or mm-hmm. You would lock the front doors and everything. Mm-hmm. And her brother and dad are the ones that found her. Because mm-hmm. she, didn't, like she didn't, in the morning on Monday morning, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she didn't, uh, she didn't come home from work. And the back door, which would have been on 4th Street side, back side of the, okay. the hair salon there, it was unlocked when they got there, so the speculation was that she possibly knew whoever it was and it unlocked the door for them. Yeah, okay, that was what I was thinking, because... That information's been out there. It's That's not, not new news on that, but... In 2008, Sergeant David Limits was quoted as saying it was a crime of passion because the tip-top was not robbed and she was not sexually assaulted. I actually looked up the archives in the Argonaut and I was scrolled all the way down to 1970 and I did find a January 6th edition of the ARG which posted some little bits and pieces of the autopsy report that they did mentioned like her time of death being between 7:30 and 8 p.m. This autopsy report also mentions that she suffered massive head wounds from a jagged instrument no, like it was a, a it's about a hammer. Like yeah, a, it's yeah, a, yeah. The hammer's been out there, and it was a uh, hammer that they think was one that was kept in the store for using on stuff, and and they never were able to locate it. Okay. It's never been located. Uh, in 1994, we had a captain or a lieutenant that worked here at the time that was doing follow up on the case, mm-hmm. and they put that information out there. And I think that was the first time that information had ever been out there, but it was. Mm-hmm. they had a lot of people calling and showing up with broken hammers and things. That mm-hmm. Was any of that tested? Possibly? They checked into all of them and nothing 
they don't believe any of them were the, what we were looking for. When I did ask Detective Crasswell if there was any DNA evidence at the scene, he kind of went quiet that there was evidence at the scene and it was actually swabbed, tested, and then sent to the FBI. Based on what evidence the police had, what evidence the FBI had, they had found a suspect, one that knew the family and knew Janice very well, but the suspect was first interviewed in 1992 because they actually exhumed Janice's body for more evidence. Was there any, like, oh my gosh, I don't even know, like, anything taken away, like, swabbed, anything at the scene that... Yeah, they sent in, yep, they sent all that to the FBI for testing back. Um, They did a pretty thorough job on the case originally, and and, uh, there was quite a few items that were sent to the FBI for testing and fingerprinting, um, cash that was left there. Unfortunately, with cash, you're going to have... You're going to have um, a lot of fingerprints on cash, but the uh, the problem with fingerprinting is is even if you get a good fingerprint, you have to have the suspect's fingerprints in the database too, because yeah, unless you've been <laughs> arrested or some other reason that your fingerprints would be in a national database, mm-hmm. then that's what it takes to get a match. And where their fingerprints? On that? that I don't remember. Okay, because I I don't remember. Really I don't believe they got any. It. I've read those reports, and I don't believe they got any identifiable prints returned, but they may have. They had multiple suspects within a few days. And a they few were, days, I mean, okay. They I were interviewing know. a lot of people, but they were, I don't know if they ever had just one at any time. I mean, they had, they would exhaust all leads they had on each one, but they had, you know, multiple people. Even to this day, uh, people that know that I'm in law enforcement work here that lived here back then, they still have their theories on who it was, and I've had people I know mm-hmm. give me theories over the years. Same names that I've heard before, but there's a few names that still come up. It's not just one name that everybody says, this is it. Mm-hmm. And why do they think Why do they think that? Nobody knows. Really? <laughs> they have their reasons because the person may have hung out there, they may have acted weird, they knew her. So, you know, everybody thinks it's somebody that... The consensus mm-hmm. is that it's somebody that knew her. There was someone who was... I think polygraphed a couple times. They ended like ended up releasing or like crossing him off the list, I guess. Um, and I just was like, what about the polygraph would make um, someone, you know? It wasn't just the polygraph. Okay. There was a bunch of follow-up done at that time, mm-hmm. and there were interviews done, and based on everything, it's not just a polygraph that okay. you would eliminate somebody from, but that was just part of it. Um. So, do you know anything about what like? the family has said through the years and what they believe? After, a, you know, it's typical with that. Families do try to move on. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and but they haven't forgot about it. Yeah. And it's my understanding over the years that the families always believed it was somebody that knew her, just like mm-hmm. the investigators believed. I mean, that was the, uh, it wasn't just a, a random thing where somebody killed her. If you, uh, if you look at a, Majority of homicides, it's usually somebody that at least knew the person mm-hmm. before that. I mean, it's not that it doesn't happen. Sometimes there's just random killings and stuff, but it's it's usually somebody that knew a lot of times. And um, and uh, like I said, it was investigated pretty thoroughly, and there was definitely there there was there would be a strong suspect, and then they would interview him, and then el- or do the follow up on it, and they'd get eliminated, or at least nothing that could be charged. Mm-hmm. And then there would be another one mm-hmm. the case. 
And so what do you think the big break would be like? It could Well, that's the thing is you can't predict that. Yeah. It could be the smallest little thing. It could be, you know, obviously a big break would be somebody on the, a deathbed confession or whatever, mm-hmm. but they've kept this secret for 50 years. Chance of that's probably pretty low, but, you know, somebody out there may have known something or whoever did it. So if this person was ever arrested, I mean, after this, then they would show up in the database and the fingerprints would... Exactly. Yep. And that hasn't happened. So. As long as we keep the case active, it's always going to be somebody's going to read it and see. Yeah, it. You never know. I mean, it would be great to solve mm-hmm. the case. The hope in the end is that this person, who would be in their late 60s by now, either commits a crime and has his fingerprints entered into the system and we automatically get a hit on it, or confesses on their deathbed. It seems to be what most detectives hope will happen at this point. From what I have seen in later articles from the Lewiston Tribune, the detectives from the police department in Moscow hope this case will be solved through a deathbed confession. And that really does seem like the only likely option at this point. Janice and her family still deserve justice. So if you know of anyone who might know anything about this murder as long ago as it was, you can contact the Moscow Police Department at 208 882-2677.